Have you ever had to learn a lesson by painful experience? In Genesis 38, God records for us why it was so vital that his people stay away from the ungodly by recording for us the tragic events of Judah's fall. For the Lord is our defense, yes, to defend us. For the Lord is our defense, yes, to defend us. For the Lord is our defense, yes, to defend us. For the Lord is our defense, yes, to defend In the opening 11 verses, as we learn of Judah's spiritual decline, we're told that he moves away from the covenant family and integrates his life among the Canaanites, becoming friends with a man by the name of Hira. We're then told that Judah marries a Canaanite, and together they have three sons. Now, the first of these three sons marries a woman by the name of Tamar, and while the detail's not given of his action or what he was up to, this son is so wicked, God strikes him down prematurely in the prime of his life. Now, when we get to the Law of Moses, we're going to discover something called Leverite marriage. But what we find from this chapter is that the custom is going on much earlier than in the day of Moses. The idea basically is that when a man died without having left a son to inherit the property, that if there was a brother, that brother would be obligated to marry the widow and to raise up a child to that marriage. And that child then would inherit the property of the deceased brother. In addition, this practice would have given some protection to women in a vulnerable condition. And we read in this chapter that Judah's second son, Onan, has this responsibility. But what we find out is he takes advantage of Tamar without ever having any intention of raising up a child to his deceased brother. And so God strikes him down in judgment as well. So Judah promises to his daughter-in-law Tamar his third son when finally he is old enough to assume that responsibility. But we find out in verse 11 that he has no intention in following through on his word. And so in verses 12 through 23, time passes and we learn that Judah's wife dies also. And so to occupy himself amidst his sorrow and idleness, Judah enters into the celebrations and festivities that surrounded the time of sheep shearing. By this stage, enough time has passed so that Tamar is beyond doubt in the knowledge that Judah will never give his third son to her. And so she concocts a successful plan to lure Judah. Now, why do this? Is this her revenge upon Judah? I don't believe so. While Israel's later law did not make such a provision. There may have been, in some ancient forms of Leverite practice, a, an allowance for the, the father to step in and fulfill that role, especially given that his wife now has also passed. So that may have been something understood, and that is what Tamar is trying to orchestrate by this act. And there may be something else going on here. I can't shake the feeling that Tamar had a deep-seated longing to be part of this family line. And while we cannot condone the way she goes about it, there is a sense of this desire, this longing of her soul to be a part of this special people that God is working through. And the fact that Tamar is mentioned in Ruth chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 1 in a positive light 
may lend credibility to this idea. But whatever the case, when Judah exchanges some personal items as a pledge and he returns to get those items back, the mystery harlot is nowhere to be found. And so from verses 24 through 30, a few months pass and Judah is informed that Tamar is pregnant. And he's very swift to pronounce a judgment upon her, to give his opinion as to what is should be the outcome of the crime. But when Judah learns that he is the father, immediately Tamar is viewed as being justified in light of Leverite law and the fact that Judah did not keep his word. The chapter then closes with the detail that Tamar bears twins. And so we come to application. One, abandoning the company of the covenant community has consequences. The opening verse of this chapter tells us that Judah went down from his brethren. That is to say, he left the visible representation of the church at that time. Now, obviously, we know there were huge spiritual problems in Jacob's family, but what Judah does here is an Esau-like rebellion. He enters into an ungodly area, he picks up an ungodly friend, an ungodly wife, and they have ungodly children. And so just like we can see similarities between Judas and Peter in the New Testament, I think we're meant to see some similarities between Esau and Judah. And we learn again that the only difference between these men is the grace of God that will intervene and preserve the one that belongs to the Lord. But the point is really simple. Do not neglect the public worship of God. Make sure that you're found among a body of people that are like-minded, loving the Lord, raising their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and trust that that entire environment, as well as all of your efforts, God will use to raise a godly seed. Two, vows and promises are heard by God, and breaches are serious sin. In this chapter, Onan is killed for breaking his word, and Judah experiences some heavy providences as a result of his lack of trustworthiness as well. It is one thing to come up short on what it is you vowed to do, and it is quite another to purposefully do the opposite of what it is you vowed to do. Now, one of the most familiar ways where we have a taking a vow or making a promise is in the context of marriage. And in the United States, 50% of first-time marriages end in divorce. 67% of second marriages end in divorce. And 74% of third marriages end in divorce. Now, naturally, when people think of marrying for a second time or a third time, <laughs> the thought might be, shouldn't they get better at pinpointing the kind of person they want to spend the rest of their life with. But the reality is the opposite. Once someone can undermine their vow once, they will find it easier to undermine their vow a second time, a third time, and to continue in that vein. Oh, Christian, learn it well. Divorce, in order to find an increase of love and happiness in the arms of another, is a fool's errand and more than likely will result in greater unhappiness, certainly decreased wealth, and a complete mess within your family. The point is, no one gets to make a vow in the presence of God and break it without consequences. 3. Carnal living leads to careless living. 
Times of parting and celebration often lead to more sin. And we find that in this chapter, at the time of sheep shearing, Judah is spending time with a worldly friend, and he becomes willing to take a, a harlot to himself. Now, all of this perhaps has been encouraged by his friendship and certainly by the environment in which he finds himself. It's often been said that you can know a person by the company they keep. That's something that we as Christians need to assess in ourselves. Who do we like spending time with? And especially as parents, as we watch our children, because often the first indication of a spiritual problem is seeing that our children no longer want to be among the covenant community and are aspiring or desiring to be among those that have no real deep interest in the things of God. We must be very much on the alert to this, try to nip it early and endeavor to pray through such challenges to steer our children into the right path. Four, men can be most severe upon the sins they find in others that they know exist in themselves. Judah, without hesitation, pronounces a judgment upon Tamar when she's guilty of a sin that was true in his own case. He who was with sin was ready to cast the first stone. If you're a person in authority, parent, teacher, employer, be very careful because it's often true that we are very severe upon things that we know can be found in our own lives. May God help us to have more humility and to be more harsh upon ourselves than we are upon others. Five, not returning to sin is an evidence of genuine repentance. We learn in verse 26 that Judah knew her again no more, which may be a way of phrasing the change that was occurring in Judah. The next time we read of him, he is leading the way in piety within Jacob's household. Dear Christian, do not be content with some mere surface level expression of remorse for sin. Set aside time to confess sin and pray to God, knowing that he has encouraged us to say, deliver us from evil. And finally, Christ identifies with a fallen humanity. Our Lord Jesus is going to be known as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He does not run from such identification. Indeed, this is the reason why he came into the world. And so if your past is as dark as Judah's, if you have a sense of great failure in your life, be assured you're the very candidate for the mercy of God. The blood of Jesus still cleanses from all sin. 